you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 331 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Cuban Prime episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that not only is 331 a prime number, but it is a Cuban Prime as well, which is a prime number that is a solution to one of two different specific equations involving third powers of X and Y. And if you can figure that out, well, God bless you, because I have no idea. And with that wonderful little bit of Cuban prime knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Yo. Ho? No. Bo? (laughs) Flo. No. I already said no, you lose. I had to end it somehow, or we were just going to be in an (laughs) endless cycle of bullcrappery. Oh my gosh, indeed, indeed. All right, and here we are going into our second episode of our Ray Harryhausen four-part series covering his works and or selected filmography, if you will, of him to kind of go into all of the wonderful things that made Ray Harryhausen movies so special and one and providing all of the amazing influence that he did to a lot of different special effects people, but also a lot of amazing directors and stuff that we have had the pleasure of watching their work. And I don't know, I I am always reminded of the little nod in Monsters, Inc. when they're in the monster world and the restaurant that they uh, get that Mike and Sully or I guess Mike gets reservations to because of Sully. And the restaurant is called Harryhausen's. And I just, I think that's just such a wonderful little really? nod to him. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yeah, it is a beautiful little nod to him in that. And especially since it's all about monsters and everything else, I just, I thought it was really cool that they did that. So anyway, um, yeah, so this is the episode two of four in our Ray Harryhausen series. We got two more um, that we're going to be covering, and I guess without further ado, you just want to jump right on in? Let's jump. Here we go, folks. It's the movie we That's right, folks. And again, uh, this isn't, as much as we're going to be doing extra discussion and stuff, we really wanted to make sure that the movies stayed the focus on this. And so we're going to be doing our ratings on these, and it'll be flicks and not so much the discussions with Matt and Tim on this stuff. So we've got Earth versus the Flying Saucers from 1956 and 20 Million Miles to Earth. And I guess, as always, we're going to go in chronological order here and go. Flying saucers have invaded our planet. Washington, London, Paris, Moscow are key targets. The whole world is under attack. Can it survive? We are the survivors of a disintegrated solar system. At this moment, the remainder of our fleet is circling your globe. What do you want with me? Arrange for your world leaders to confer with us in the city of Washington. They set up an 
electronic screen. The artillery doesn't penetrate. Never before has the screen reached such heights of excitement. Breathtaking spectacle. Hair-raising terror. See the saucer men's high-frequency disintegrator. See flying saucers travel thousands of miles in seconds. See great cities leveled by flying saucer monsters. Russ, look. The same kind of thing that's watched us since the beginning of the project. People of Earth, attention. People of Earth, attention. This is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. They're coming down to take over. They made that clear to us in the saucer. To the best of our knowledge, my wife and I are the only ones left alive. Yes. What do we want to talk about for this one, sir? Before we talk the movie itself. Well, Earth versus the Flying Saucers came out in 1956. It's a Columbia-released film, as discussed last year. Last year, wow. It must have felt like a full year has passed since we <laughs> released last episode, the last episode. But as discussed on last week's episode, <laughs> we went into a little detail of how Harryhausen got involved with Columbia Pictures and the producer, Shear, that he'd go on to do a lot of movies with over the years. And this is the second film that Columbia Pictures will release of Ray Harryhausen's. And again, it came out in 1956. However, what also came out in 1956 was a little, I guess, uh, I mean, it's called The Animal World and it was a documentary about the progression of life over time. I wanted to bring up the animal world because he did, Ray Harryhausen did the dinosaur work, stop mm -hmm. motion animation for, you know, in, in, in that film. And the dinosaurs featured in that film would go on to inspire Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. And Spielberg would go on and incorporate some of the movements and the techniques that or I should say nuance, not technique, that Ray Harryhausen supplied to his dinosaurs, Spielberg would go on and incorporate much that same type of nuance, you know, like how the dinosaurs react with one another, the looks that they give to one another, you know, what you see in their eyes, and, you know, just the Ray Harryhausen basics of giving a creature some kind of characteristics that an audience could somehow connect with, despite it being an animal, even, or, or a monster. So, The Animal World came out, 1956, also Earth versus the Flying Saucers, also again released by Columbia. Ray Harryhausen believed that creatures needed to be humanoids, to better develop character. If a creature has human features and walks on two legs, then maybe an audience could feel some sympathy for those creatures. Our next film that we're going to be reviewing on this episode is 20 Million Miles to Earth, which is a better example of human features, you know, these humanoid creatures designed to be humanoids so the audiences can feel sympathy for these characters the better example will be in 20 million miles to earth you don't really see what the aliens look like under the protection of their solidified electricity spacesuits until the end of 
Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Along with George Worthing Yates, the film was co-written by Bernard Gordon, but Bernard Gordon was credited as Raymond T. Marcus because Gordon was one of the many screenwriters at the time who were blacklisted. But luckily, his real name was added to the credits for the 2008 Restoration release. So the release that both Matt and I own, and I'm sure some of you listening own as well, his real name is now in the credits, which is, I think, pretty cool. And pretty much all I got to say is what I enjoyed about the film itself. So the floor is yours, Matthew, if you have any other background. This is actually, of last week and this week, this is actually my least favorite film. Really? Really. And here's why. I didn't have any problem with the acting in and of itself. I think that it's a fairly standard UFO scare fest in the sci-fi vein that is the mid to late 1950s and i think it works for what it is especially for its time i don't think that the i don't think the plot especially has aged well and i think if you lean into movies i think think back to the future when he crashes into the barn when marty crashes into the barn mars attacks uh with, with the with just the Martian ships and stuff themselves. It, these are things that have, this is the time period where this stuff is at its height, but at the same time, this is also the stuff that is most easily identifiable as being campy and easily made fun of in a trope department. And one of the things that kind of makes it easier to do is because from a production standpoint, given all the militaristic aspects of it, so much stock footage. And the stock footage that they used is reused within the film several times. And to their credit, they do a good job of hiding it um, as best as they can, but it's still, because they're having to do it so many times, it becomes pretty obvious that it's just more of the same or at least very similar to the stock footage you've already seen. I mean, it's great because it saves on the effects. Um, and it's also telling because this is one, this was one of his frustrations is it's hard to make a disc, a, a flying saucer look good because it's just a spinning disc. Now he does a great job. That's not to say he doesn't, but all of these production issues kind of lean into this one being kind of, eh, it's decent, it's good, um, he does the best of what he can, and of course he, he develops a really good cheat by having the people, and yes, I know you don't really see anything because they're wearing their special electric spacesuits, but he uses the ability of having people in the frame coming out of the ship, going in the ship, doing whatever they can while the ship is in motion, that you, that that provides something for you to have a focal point on so that you can see the flying saucer in motion, which I think was a brilliant call by him. So, uh, yeah, so getting, I mean, so, so it's those production issues that kind of I wanted to make sure I talk about because this one kind of is not my favorite. So... Please don't hate me. <laughs> I guess is what we're getting to. <laughs> so what, what did you give it? 
Or what do you get? Um, on, well, for me, uh, <laughs> as Blaine would say, for me, well, it's like, uh, actually, I give this one a 3.5 out of 5. And I do that because I think that I, I still rely on the strength of the time period. I, I, I let that stand on its own. It's just kind of a weaker one, unfortunately. Um, but... And and I also think that it deserves praise because of the difficulty of bringing flying saucers to life. And Harryhausen still did it; still did a great job. And it is worthy entry. And I think it's that aspect of it—the the true aspect of how difficult it was to bring those flying saucers to life—as to why it is included in that box set that we have. And so I give this one a three point five out of five. It's the weakest. Of this week for sure, and I guess thinking about it, it's the weakest of last week uh, too, because we were we were pretty glowing on the stuff from last week. So I don't know what what where do you land on it, man? A four. <laughs> I mean, it's not by no means it's not a, a perfect film, but I did find it to be a well above average 1950s alien sci-fi flick. I found it to be pretty smart and a lot of fun. I was surprised to see that the Story plays out pretty seriously without pandering to children, which is kind of sure. a breath of fresh air when it comes to these you know, movies from, from this time. Because if you look at, well, granted, a lot of the films were B-movies, and Ray Harryhausen movies aren't B-movies. The only reason why people consider them as B-movies is because of the budget. You know, the, the budgets for his early films weren't really that high. So there's still it's great quality it's just not wall-to-wall special effects action which i think a lot of us will you know what what we will come to know and love with jason the argonauts clash of the titans and uh seventh voyage of sinbad but i thought it was a fun movie i i liked it not being childish. I liked watching things play out as if these were real things that 1950s Hollywood politics, you know, their version of of of, of 1950s politics and government officials. I like watching how their version of these people would have solved this situation because they go through all the right motions. And whenever mm. they rule out or come with a bogus idea, they normally do rule it out, but they provide you with exposition and explain why they're going to rule it out. And it, I don't know, it was just kind of funny, fun, a little bit of that B-movie, you know, semi-schlocky dialogue, but it's still, you know, it was good. Yeah, and that's actually the one, that's actually one of the things that I actually really enjoyed about this movie is because this, despite its schlocky dialogue, it was very cleverly written, especially for the 1950s, because they have, um, Hugh Marlowe and Joan Taylor are the actor and actress in question, but they're playing Dr. Russell A. Marvin and his wife Carol Marvin, respectively, and they're married. And so they kind of have this tag team where they work together and it's through that that they're able to constantly be together and have that kind of interplay. Also, the, um, the, the, uh, her dad is a general, which helps to tie her further into access to the base and stuff. So, I, I mean, despite the, 
where we're coming from and looking at it in this lens. And, and as you said, it's this kind of a budget thing where people think it's a B movie. It, it is very cleverly written so that you can have the plot play out the way that it needs to play out. And, you know, it's not like there's not redeeming factors to the movie. And I hope that that comes across in my review. Yeah, and so what's very interesting also, you calling it clever is, I think, a very good way to describe it because it is clever. I mean, like the element of the aliens using mind manipulation to gain knowledge from military and government officials. Sure. You know, and the aliens do say that they'll return the bodies once they've learned what they wanted. (laughs) But who knows what kind of mental state these bodies or these people will be in, you know? So stuff like that is clever. And I guess I don't want to spoil too much, but you learn about halfway through that these aliens are not good aliens. And their reasoning for not being the greatest aliens actually makes a little bit of sense. And they become, because the movie is being played out semi-seriously, they become a threat worth rooting against. They're pretty deadly, I was noticing that the civilian body count (laughs) in this film is significantly higher than probably any pre-Infinity War Marvel movie. Probably all of those movies put together, the body count isn't nearly, uh, the on-screen body count is not as nearly as high as the on-screen body count in Earth versus the Flying Saucers. I mean, you see people get crushed you see people that blow up. You see people that just die, you know. And these are just folks just running away. <laughs> Absolutely. Adds a, a level of peril that elevates this movie to just fun. What is interesting about the UFOs, the flying saucers in this film, is that what we consider to be the stereotypical flying saucer derived from Ray Harryhausen's flying saucers i mean he's seen flying saucers before in other films but they were very stagnant like they would and i shouldn't say stagnant but they looked for as mobile as they should be they didn't look it so they would just kind of go up go down and just move side to side ray harryhausen's flying saucers his discs rotate at the top and rotate clockwise at the top, and the bottom rotates counterclockwise. And he came up with it while trying to figure out how, you know, like, how do these ships fly? You know, this'll be my way of creating some kind of anti-gravity force to allow the ship to hover and maneuver and all that jazz. So it's very inventive, because also, during this time in Hollywood history, they don't have deleted scenes. They don't have Blu-rays or even laser discs at the time where you could watch said deleted scenes or extended content. If a studio thought a shot was not pertinent to the main story, they'd just cut it out of the film and sell it off as stock footage. What's interesting is that you might have watched a documentary. You might have watched another sci-fi film or news even, or any like conspiracy theory show, or mystery alien show, or even X-Files, you might have seen some of his flying saucers from this movie that was sold as stock footage. 
utilized in those other flicks. Because what we think of as the, again, what we think of as the stereotypical flying saucer is his original flying saucer. So it's just absolutely, I mean, I don't want to say it's mind-blowing, but it's just very interesting to learn about all of Ray Harryhausen's contributions to cinema. And not only just cinema, but really pop culture, you know, to the same degree as even like, you know, Steven Spielberg's stamp on pop culture and nostalgic filmmaking. And an added bonus is that um, Harryhausen's saucer, while is the iconic saucer design, is something he actually got help on from a guy who is named George uh, Adamski, who was a famous 1950s, air quotes here, contactee. And he said that they kind of looked like saucers with little V shapes in them or whatever. And that's one of the basis of information that Harryhausen used to come up with the saucers he used in this movie. And we were talking last week about all the filmmakers and special effects artists who were influenced by Ray Harryhausen. If you've ever seen Tim Burton's Mars Attacks... There's something wrong with you if you would not agree that he is directly <laughs> taking a lot of liberties with uh, Ray Harryhausen's alien attack on Washington, D.C. Because in this film, Earth versus the Flying Saucer, Flying Saucer crashes into the Capitol, into the Dome. Another one crashes into the Washington Monument. Tim Burton did the same exact thing in, in Mars Attacks. With a little bit of a deviation, but he did it, obviously, as an ode to Ray Harryhausen. It's a lot of fun when you go back and watch some of these directors and rewatch some of these movies that I've grown up watching, like Mars Attacks or other Spielberg movies or George Lucas films, and see what they've sampled from Ray Harryhausen's flicks. Probably, I mean, I don't, I can't say more so than not, because I know Clash of the Titans and Jason Organauts and even the Some Voyage of Sinbad, a lot of action adventure movies sampled, especially Indiana Jones, sampled a, a lot of those storytelling and film nuance from those films to use in, in Indiana Jones. But for a sci fi film, a lot has been sampled from Earth versus the Flying Saucers. So. Maybe that affected my score to at least a half-star degree. I don't know. It was a fun movie. Cheer fun. So four out of five again for me. Right on. Okay, well, then that leaves us with 20 million miles to Earth. Early one morning near a fishing village off the coast of Sicily. Fishermen, ignoring the danger of the sinking rocket, climb into the gaping hole. Crawling through tangled wreckage and smoke-filled cabins, they find the pilot still alive, the only survivor. Take him to the boat, quickly! The next day, Pepe finds a sealed container with a strange substance in it. For a few coins, he sells it to Dr. Leonardo, a zoologist who is on an expedition for the Rome Zoological Society. My gloves! Where are my gloves? Under the table. What is it? Where did it come from? Pepe, the, the little fisher boy. Marisa! Marisa! Observe me, I got. Observe our strange friend. Look, 
how much he has grown in but a few hours. It's unbelievable. Colonel Calder's superior requests the Italian government's aid in locating the missing container. Unborn specimen of the animal life on the planet. We've got to find it. What way may I assist you? The Italian officials locate Colonel Calder's rescuers, and Pepe leads them to where he left the empty container. Empty. Dr. Leonardo starts back to Rome with the strange creature. I beg your pardon, but you must be... No, Commissario! Commissario! A strange animal has escaped. A strange animal you've never seen before? Like something no one has ever seen before. The airship XY-21, which crashed into the Mediterranean Sea on the 11th, was a single-stage, astral-propelled rocket launched 13 months ago from a site within the United States. The rocket, with its complement of 17 men, had landed on the planet Venus. Venus? The planet Venus? Some of you may also have heard the story of a monster now confined here in Rome's zoo. That beast is from Venus. Okay, well, now that you're a little familiar with everything here, this is an interesting one. You'll notice that this film takes place in the United States, but also takes place in Rome. It's a huge deal that it's, Rome is happening. Um, I found this kind of interesting. Tim, do you know why it was filmed in Rome? Because <laughs> he wanted to pull an Adam Sandler and visit Rome? Kind of. Uh, it was filmed in Rome because he was already there on vacation. I thought it was because he wanted to vacation there. That's why he chose it. Is that I? I was okay. I thought he was already on vacation and was like, "You're gonna film here if we're gonna be there." Yeah, so. because the movie was it was originally set somewhere else, and I think he wanted to go to Rome. And then him and his and the screenwriter came up with Rome and the idea of a creature terrorizing the streets of ancient Rome would be That's cinematic funny. and different. Yeah. But either way, I mean, yeah, and I think you are right. I was looking at a TCM article, and that that is, yes, you are correct. Um, so it's just kind of funny, yeah. yeah. Look, Adam Sandler was also influenced by Ray Harryhausen, <laughs> whether or not he wanted it uh, to be or not. Now, I I think this one is interesting. This is again, uh, we've got this creature from, you know, like basically venus or whatever and it grows differently here it's it's kind of like what superman would be if superman was from venus and a lizard because whereas in krypton their red sun makes them equally do whatever they can do and our yellow sun makes the kryptonian people powerful well the 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 lizard from venus does its normal thing there, but when it's here, it grows like twice as fast and has this mass and you can do all this other kind of crap, right? Well, I think what's interesting here is that, uh, again, it was a Ymir, Y-M-I-R, and it is from, uh, it's like a beast from Norse mythology, and people thought that might be confused with the Arabic emir e-m-i-r and so they literally took all the references to the emir out and um they reworked it without that also something i found was pretty cool the sounds are basically elephant sounds played at different speeds 
which I thought was really cool. I don't know. Is there anything cool from the production that you thought was worth sharing? So the movie starts off in Sicily, in Italy. And how about those primitive 19, circa 1957 Sicilians with their their <laughs> obsession with the country of Texas and not knowing what a trailer is? I think the quote is, they're trying to look for that scientist, the American scientist. Quote, he lives in that house on wheels. It follows his car like a goat, end quote. Yes, primitive Sicilians, <laughs> they have an obsession with the cowboys in the country of Texas, not the state of Texas, the country of Texas, and they are unaware of what trailers are. But I've been getting a kick out of experiencing the evolution of Ray Harryhausen's special effects, you know, like like having a having a moving creature in the same shot with actors. All that looks a little more believable and a little bit more... Uh, seamless. I mean, it's by mm. no means perfect by today's standards, but there's just more of a fluidity to it. And there's more of an obvious sense of, of a true craftsman, of somebody that's really honing in, you know, his his art form. Because again, it is pretty seamless. And I know it's just not the restored version I am seeing because they're taking the negatives and the elements of the original film. So I've, that's got to say something. But the stop motion... I really liked his incorporation of breathing and the blinking of eyes with the Thank creature you. in this yes. film. You know, he would install some kind of like a like a like a medical type pump, you know, when he was building the creature, when he was constructing the creature. And so that just adds weight to the character, you know, to the creature. Also, what you'll really notice in this film that I was mentioning before that in addition to doing stop motion on the creatures, but he also has to stop motion on the things that the creature destroys or comes into contact with. Well, in this film, the creature has a tussle with a human being. So Ray Harryhausen now has to completely do stop motion on a human being. So it's actually well done at first until you start looking at the human being and you realize that's clearly a puppet, but it's, it's highly effective. <laughs> The same thing can be said with the fight that the creature has with the dog in the film. Okay. Ray Harryhausen wasn't excited about the the mold, the model of the dog miniature, so he just decided to have the entire fight take place where the audience only sees their shadows. And that just leaves things up to the imagination. It just sounds more brutal, and you can just almost see the carnage that was going down behind that box or, you know, whatever it was that was uh, hiding them. Again, it's just great to see his talent elevate with each one of these movies, the quality especially. My, yeah, and honestly, I was thoroughly impressed with the elephant. I thought that, while yes, I, I think it was a very good cheat to have the dog in shadow and have that fight in shadow. And yes, I mean, there's only so much you could do because um, he hadn't really gotten into the full uh, Dynavision uh, aspects of everything yet. We'll, we'll see more of that um, as we move forward into the remaining two episodes. But, I mean, if you think about what he's having to work with for 1957... 
and you put it up against the screen against the real elephant because there's a real elephant in there too at certain aspects and then they go to the fight and everything i was impressed i thought at first i was gonna be kind of like but i mean he just he really had the fluidity down i mean he's coming into his craft he is amazing at what he's doing and it absolutely shows. I think, I mean, this is definitely, and also, and, and like you pointed out with the breathing, and you're really starting to see the expressiveness, like all the work that had went into Mighty Joe Young, you can really see this paying off in the, um, Emir as it's fully grown and everything in 20 million miles to earth. I, I mean, this has been, this is absolutely my favorite of the four. Myself, I give this one a five. I mean, and it, I mean, it's hands down based on the special effects. The performances are a little lacking. I think they're a little bit better than the previous film, than versus Earth versus Flying Saucers. But yeah, I mean, the special effects are just like holy crap. I I love this one. This is fantastic. And you mentioned the tussle that the creature has with the elephant and all that is stop motion animation. The entire fight scene, it's long, it's full of nuance. Clearly this film was a bigger budget movie, but when the creature delivers that, that death bite to the elephant's neck, the nuance that I particularly loved was whenever the creature lifts his head up from the bite it kind of, it comes in contact with the elephant's ear, and the elephant's ear is huge, and it's cover it covers its neck, you know, when especially when it's laying on its side, and mm. when the monster or the creature raises its head, the ear catches on its head, and you see the ear come up with the creature, and then it flaps back down and kind of wiggles there ever so slightly. It's just wonderful. It just again adds character and depth to every single one of. Uh, one of these little what's going to happen moments, you know? So when the movie does get to the clear King Kong ripoff of an ending, you feel a little bit sad <laughs> for the for the creature, you know? I mean, despite, despite the last line in the movie is a clear ripoff of Fay Ray's line at the end of King Kong where one dude turns to the other dude while the creature is dead and... He says something like, why is it always, always so costly for man to move from the present to the future? Wow, talk, how about that heavy line of dialogue that doesn't make a whole lot of sense? But you know what? It might affect somebody emotionally that had no idea what they were getting themselves into. I don't know. At least back in the 50s. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, but it is interesting, though, because I think it's, I think this really goes to show how little we knew it, the world how little the world knew about space and how wondrous it was even though we're still dealing with sputnik and different aspects of what's going on with rockets and all that kind of stuff um and so i think it really bleeds into creative choices and decisions that get made in the movie making process for example i thought it was a great touch that the creature eats sulfur, right? I mean, you wouldn't, most of the time when you think monster movie, it, despite it being alien, despite it being sci-fi, when you've got your monster, what do they always eat? People, right? Animals or just doing destructive things. And this creature is 
not inherently destructive and also eats a chemical compound. And I thought that was great. You know, of course, the fact that it has no heart or lungs is kind of interesting, but whatever. It's from Venus. <laughs> it eats sulfur. And the film is littered with with beautiful shots, like when the creature is hatching. That's such a great shot. Just that alone with this little dude, you know, breaking out of its shell or sack or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> it's, it's jello mold. Jello mold. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's excellent character work. You know, with the creature, it's excellent character work. It's a very good intro to the character and the sadness that'll come later on in the film. But again, I mean, and and that goes into what I was talking about beforehand of creating a creature that an audience can sympathize with. This creature is a humanoid type creature, you know, that stands on two legs it draws more character. I mean, that's the thing with Ray Harryhausen. He believes if, if a monster, if a creature, whatever, if you want the audience to care about him, he's got to stand on two legs because, you know, an audience can identify with somebody you know, that can stand tall, I guess. And it's very effective. I give the film a 4.5 out of 5. It's a, it's a beautiful little film, despite its clear King Kong knockoffs or stealings. That's all right. They can't all be winners now, can they, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, very cool. All right. Well, that definitely brings us to the end of our second episode in the history of Ray Harryhausen that we're going to be covering here. And next week's movies are going to be Mysterious Island from 1961 and Jason and the Argonauts. And hopefully you will be playing along at home. And until then, those be the movies. So I think we are once again ready for the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chomp the one to help, chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down to on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. As always, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down in the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, please do so by heading over to patreon.com and checking us out there and so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to ray harryhausen i get to say this i was very limited in what i could do with flying saucers because they're just a metal disc i had to try and put character in as if they were intelligently guided take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week Madam, perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur.
get it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.